Brothers and sisters, it's a privilege for me to be here to share God's word with you this morning. For those who don't know me, my name is Joe. My wife, Cher, and I are members of this church. So a few weeks ago, I read an interesting story about Benjamin Franklin, who is one of the founding fathers of the United States. The story is told that Benjamin Franklin, as a young man, decided one day to keep track of his moral characters every day to make sure that he's growing in his good characters. So he made a list of 10 to 20 different traits that he think a person is necessary to grow to. Uh, the list contains things like diligence, honesty, wisdom, and humility. And each day he would score them and reflect on them to see if he had done them right or wrong. But after just a short period of time, Franklin abandoned the process saying that there's a loophole in the system. There's a bog in his system. He noticed that every time he scored high on his achievements, he would, so he would score low in humility. And every time he scored low in general, he would score high in humility. So it becomes impossible for him to improve in humility without failing in other areas. We can argue that Benjamin Franklin's case, the cause of his loophole was his pride. This is a sin known for its persistence. It can show up when you feel you have done something great. You start to give yourself all the credit you think you deserve. Even when you are humbled by your failures, pride can pat at your back to congratulate you for realizing that your own humility. Some Christians would even argue that pride is the root of all sins because all sins are based on seeing ourselves equal or greater than God. And the reason for us to think about pride today is because that is the sin the Corinthians have been struggling with. And the major part of 1 Corinthians is Paul's confrontation to the church on their pridefulness. For the past few weeks, we have been spending our time studying the letter by Paul to the church of Corinth. And the issue that Paul is addressing to the church is that there is division among the people. Some say that I follow Paul, others say I follow Cephas, and some say that they follow Apollos. And the cause of this division, Paul knows, is believers' puffed-up attitude on their knowledge of God. That is why Paul repeatedly reminds them in the past few verses from, verse, from chapter 1 to chapter 2 that we are saved by the power of God, not by the wisdom of men. John taught us last week that Christians' understanding of God comes from the power of the Holy Spirit that is in us. Paul is pointing the church to the power of God because he knows the church took pride in their own wisdom rather than God's power. So as we approach our text this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 to verse 9, we are going to learn about the damage of pride that can cause the church. The key message for us this morning is churches are broken by pride, but united by the gospel. Let us first turn our Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and read through the verses. I'll read just two verses before chapter 3 to give us a context of the passage. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting from chapter 2, verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord, 
so as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Churches are broken by pride, but united by the gospel. So for this part of the message, we are going to divide our theme into two parts. The first part is how pride breaks the church. We'll have three sub-points on this. And the second part is how does the gospel unite the church. We'll also have three points in that. So first thing we need to know about how pride breaks the church is that it stops the church from spiritual growth. We can see from the beginning of chapter 3, Paul rebukes the church for being spiritually immature. If you look at end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, there's a transition in Paul's writing from addressing biblical truth about wisdom to addressing church and its spiritual health. Paul is telling the church in chapter 2 that we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. Because through the power of the Spirit, we can know God. But, he says in verse 1, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Because even with the ability to understand the will of God, the church chose to rely on human wisdom. They chose to boast in the work of man rather than the power of God. They act like people who do not know the Lord. Paul continues in verse 2. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. Even now you are not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. This is a direct statement from Paul saying that the church is immature. Many places in the New Testament, the word milk is used as a metaphor to describe the fundamental teaching about God. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, it writes, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. So whenever we see milk, it refers to the basic principles of God's teaching, like what is the gospel, man's sinful nature, or God's grace. Therefore, even though the church may think they are full of wisdom, Paul is telling them, they are still lacking in the basic knowledge of God's teaching. Paul is not saying that it is wrong to learn the fundamental teaching of God, because every believer begins in their spiritual life as an infant. 
And we all have to learn the basic teachings. What Paul is expressing to the Corinthians is his disappointment in their lack of growth and maturity in spirit. Imagine you bought seeds to plant flowers. You put into the work uh, to make sure that it's, it gets watered every day and make sure it's in a good condition and environment. But for weeks and months, you do not see any changes. The earth is still flat. You don't see any signs of growth. That would be disappointing. That's somewhat like Paul is feeling at that moment. And you would even question whether this seed is real or not. Of course, Paul's disappointment goes much deeper than that. To understand Paul's disappointment, we first need to understand the importance of spiritual growth. And throughout the Bible, the word sanctification is most often used to describe the process of spiritual growth. Sanctification. This is a process of transformation for a person to become holy or to become more like Christ Jesus. Throughout the history of Christianity, theologians have summarized three things that according to the Bible are absolutely necessary to the salvation of every man and woman. These are justification, regeneration, and third, sanctification. A person's salvation cannot separate from his sanctification. A person's salvation does not separate from his sanctification because it is the will of God for every believer to be sanctified or to grow in spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, it says, Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. God's love for his people did not just stop at the work of cross or resurrection. It continues in each believer's heart with the work of the Holy Spirit. Our God did not just only take away the guilt of sin in our heart. He also destroyed the dominion of sin in our lives. Sanctification is also important because it is the core evidence for our salvation. It reveals the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We cannot check in each person's heart and see whether there's Holy Spirit or not. But what we can see is the work of the Holy Spirit that is being produced in a person's life. Before coming to WSBC, Sharon and I were attending Grace Community Church in Los Angeles. It is a church led by a pastor named John MacArthur, who has been a pastor for the church for the past 52 years. That is a long time, and so many people who come to his church expect him to know everything, including how we can make sure that someone is saved. So we have these Q&A sessions during evening services that we can ask the pastor questions, and often people ask him the question that how can we recognize if someone is really saved? And his answer is that there are really no tools but one, one tool that may help you, that is time. Time is the best tool for one to see whether a person is saved or not. Because as time passes by, the Spirit will produce, and no one can stop that. Now, Paul's concern and disappointment for the church comes from him not seeing the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, he sees the work of the flesh being produced in the church. 
That is why he says he cannot even address them as believers, but as unbelievers, as people of the flesh. Facing this part of the text, I think we should ask ourselves a question. Do you desire to grow in spirit? Do you desire to grow in spirit? Do you desire to grow in spirit, or do you think spiritual growth is just not for you? It is only for certain people in the church who are extra zealous. It is only for the good student in the class. But that is not true. That is not an option for a believer. Growth is an integral part of your spiritual well-being. There's a book that most of the members have, maybe not read, but have, that is called What is a Healthy Church? In it, Mark Dever addresses the importance of spiritual growth. And this is what he says. Growth is a sign of life. If a tree is alive, it grows. If an animal is alive, it grows. Being alive means growing. And growing means increasing and advancing, at least until death intercedes. Therefore, brothers and sisters, do not think growth is optional for all who believe. So the question is that, do you desire to grow in spirit? And if your answer is yes, my encouragement for you from this text is to seek the knowledge of God from his word. This book that Paul is talking about, the source of our strength to fight against the desire of our flesh. And we must rely on the power of the spirit, not our own wisdom, to seek God's teaching. Because if we rely on our own wisdom, we will fail. The Corinthian church took pride in their own wisdom and thought themselves being wiser and more noble than others. But in reality, their pride blinded them to see their immaturity and worldliness. And that caused them to remain as spiritual infants. If we read on from the text in verse 3, Besides spiritual immaturity, we see that the Corinthian church's pride also caused conflict within the church. That is our second point. Pride creates conflict within the church. Paul writes, For for a while there is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? For this, from, from this, we can see the overall relationship between the believers in the church is in a bitter state. Paul revealed to us that there is jealousy and strife within the church. Now, in our daily lives, jealousy is somewhat lost, has somewhat lost its meaning, I think. When I think of jealousy, I think of the stepmother and the sister in Cinderella. Just by looking at their facial expressions, you know that they are mean and jealous. But that only happens in movies and fictions. In reality, jealousy hides deep in a person's heart, and all of us are tempted in many ways to be jealous of something. But what exactly is jealousy? How do we define it? John Piper, in one of his articles, defined jealousy as a type of anger. A type of anger. An anger caused by an affection for something that one does not deserve. 
an anger caused by an affection for something that one does not deserve. So if you use this definition of jealousy and look at the heart of the Corinthians, we should see their affection is after wisdom. And when each believes himself to be the wisest, they also believe they ought to be recognized by others. And when that is not the case, they start to defend themselves, bringing up evidence to support their beliefs. Some would say, I learned this from Paul. Others would say, but Apollos taught me this. Their hearts were not after the true teaching of the gospel, but selfish desires to prove themselves right in the arguments. This type of conflict within the church was not unique to the church of Corinth. James also addressed the same issue in his letter to the scattered group of believers, and he warns them, saying that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. This exact verse can be used to describe the Corinthians, because jealousy and selfish ambition have caused disorder within that church. It is often in our minds to think that some severe challenges coming from outside of the church might break the church. But we know deep in our heart those trials often strengthen our faith and unite the church. Visits from authority, COVID-19, Mark's cancer, from all of it, I can see that we are growing, we are being united. But on the other hand, we can overlook the sins in our heart which can bring more danger and threat to the church. That is our pride, our selfish desire. And we may not be jealous of the wisdom that the Corinthians were chasing after, but there are definitely other bitterness, even anger, caused by our affection for something else. We might be jealous of relationships within the church. You might see other people are invited for lunch or dinner and you are not. And that may cause jealousy in your heart. Or it can be other people's earnings, job titles, or their children's education. All of them can cause bitterness in our hearts as we start to think, why didn't God give me this? We must be careful of these thoughts. These are sinful thoughts that do not lead to satisfaction. They only lead to disorder and division within the church. Remember that we are called to love one another in bound of peace. And it is impossible for us to love and be jealous of someone at the same time. If you look back again at verse 3 and 4, we may see the third subpoint of how pride breaks the church. It stops church from growing, it creates conflict within the church, and now pride also distorts the purpose and nature of the church. Pride distorts the purpose and nature of the church. In verse 3, Paul writes, the Corinthian church is, being, is behaving only in a human way. And in verse 4, he emphasizes again that they are being merely human, behaving only in a human way, being merely human. Paul is saying that because of their pride and selfish ambition, the church has become a place that cannot be distinguished from any other gathering in this world. Their behavior downgraded what the church should represent. 
What a church should represent is a gathering of faithful Christians to praise God and to demonstrate God's love and grace. But the pride of the people formed jealousy and strife in their hearts and relationships. And that created disorder, disputes, and misrepresentation of God and His people. Sin takes many forms, and in many ways we can see ourselves falling into the same temptation of allowing our own selfish desire distort, to distort the purpose of our church. One temptation we might all face is having a casual attitude about church attending. We may put our own comfort or convenience as a top priority. And church is just a place for us to show up. During my years in college, I remember every Sunday, Sunday morning, our church fellowship had to leave around 7.15 from our campus because our campus is very far away from our church. It was very difficult for me. I often show up late with messy hairstyles and breakfast in my hand. And the other brothers would remind me that we are going to church, not to a class. (laughs) We worship God in church, so we should prepare for it. They had a slogan for me to remember, that is, Sunday morning starts at Saturday night. Sunday morning starts at Saturday night. These brothers reminded me to think about what church actually means to me and what church, what church gathering means to a Christian. So brothers and sisters, let us be careful and not to overlook what we do every Sunday as we gather. We are people of God and we are here to glorify Him. We should not pick and choose the day we should show up and we should treat it with a sense of importance because this is the purpose of the church. Do not let your pride distort it. Now we have gone through the first point of our message, that is how pride breaks the church. We saw Paul warning us that pride stops church from growing, creates conflict within the church. And lastly, it distorts the purpose of the church. The church of Corinth is a broken church in different ways. People's pride have made this church effective in its purpose, glorifying God. As we keep, Paul is going to teach us that a broken church can only be restored by God through the gospel. And the next few verses from verse 5 to verse 9 will look into how gospel unites the church. We'll see through the lens of the gospel three different identities. The identity of the church leaders, the identity of God, and the identity of God's people. Identity of church leaders, of God, and of God's people. So how does the gospel unite the church? First point is that it reveals the identity of church leaders. Let us read again from verse 5 to verse 9. What then is Apollos, what is Paul, servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. 
So the first point Paul wants to clarify is the role of a church leader, and in this case, himself as an apostle and the founder of the Corinthian church. Paul and the other apostles are first and foremost servants of the Lord. What is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants from whom the Corinthian church believed. Paul wants the church to remember that neither he nor Apollos had the authority to choose who will hear the gospel and be saved. You can see Paul describes himself and Apollos in a passive role. They are just servants listening to the order of the master as the Lord assigned to each. And only God is in a controlling position. God is the one who calls his servant to a certain place and to share the gospel to certain people. Paul knows the church is too, thinking too highly of himself and the other apostles. The church is thinking too highly of himself and the other apostles. And this is a good opportunity for leaders of WSBC to reflect on their responsibility as God's calling. Leaders, leaders are not just elders, but those who are called to teach or serve in the leadership role. These are deacons, deaconess, Sunday morning preachers, worship leaders, Sunday school teachers, evening devotional teachers, or weekday Bible study leaders. Even though each of these positions are different roles, they are the same calling. They call us to be servants of the Lord. It is also important to know that this is a privilege to be God's servant because nothing is as meaningful as being involved in a ministry that has the power to save people's soul. On the other perspective, as followers, as attenders of the church, we should be careful not to make our, our leaders idols. Paul is clarifying to the church that he and Apollos are only servants because he knew that many in the church were idolizing him. That is why he asked the church in the beginning of the letter, was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And thinking about church leaders, it is hard for me at least not to think about our pastor, Mark Collins, who is now in the States. God has changed many of our lives through Mark. And we know what, we, what he does for the church is not something that we can replace. I remember during the summertime, I sometimes walked by Mark's old apartment and so much memory would go through my mind. And it was hard for me not to wish for him to be back with us. But thinking about Paul's message and reflecting on the role of church leader, I think the Spirit wants me to ask myself a question. Do I desire more on the return of Mark or the return of Jesus Christ? If my answer is Mark, my heart is not in the right place. Because our church is still a complete church without Mark. We can still grow. God's word is still being preached. And people are still joining our church even without knowing Mark or listening to his sermons. But without Christ, we are just lost people. Without the work of Christ, we cannot even know God. Likewise, Paul's desire for the church is to shift their attention away from himself and move towards God. If you continue to follow the track of Paul's 
thoughts on the other end of him thinking about himself as God's servant is God being the Lord and Savior of the church. This is the second point. Jesus is the Lord and Savior of the church, the identity of God, the Lord and Savior of the church. In verse 6 and 7, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. This statement must have created some conflict in the minds of Corinthians because the church of Corinth was founded by Paul. Many of them must have witnessed the work of Paul that he put into, the risk Paul took to share the gospel to them, and the work he put into to build a church. They have in their minds, uh, they might have at least to build a connection between Paul and their salvation. So without Paul, they will not be saved. But Paul is telling them that is wrong. In the work of salvation, God alone saves. Because if Paul does the same work as he did to the Corinthians, without God revealing his knowledge, no one can be saved. This particular message gives me a lot of peace during the time of my preparation for sermons. It teaches me that a sermon, for a sermon to be effective, my impact is actually very limited because God is the one who gives revelation. It does not mean that I can spend less effort in preparation because we are still called to be faithful to the task. But it reminds me to pray more in the preparation of the message, to ask God to reveal himself through his word to me and to you. This also gives me a deeper understanding about our habit of praying for the regular preaching of God's word during the evening services. It is so necessary for God to be part of this process. Teacher preach and help listeners gain understanding. Because it is not through human wisdom or skill sets that we come to know God. God gives the growth, not man. Now the reason for Paul to explain his identity and the role of God is to restore the church. Is to restore the church. Paul expressed his desire very early in the letter as he says, um, he wants there be no division among the church, but that you be unified in the same mind and the same judgment. And the foundation of all unity within the church is to recognize that our salvation is a gift from God through the work of his Son, Jesus Christ. Because the gospel should humble us and it should only and only through humility churches can be united. Just reflecting on my relationship within the church for past years, I can remember some heated arguments I had with other brothers in different topics. Uh, most of them I thought were serious topics. But I knew deep in my heart, viewing it as a serious topic was an excuse for me to argue and to win the arguments. In the light of the gospel, although many arguments and disagreements would still exist, we should still be humbled by understanding that we, cannot, we can do nothing to save our souls from eternal judgment. But God gave his only son so that we, we can only believe in him and have salvation. And in our humility, we can approach our brothers and sisters in peace. And that is also the desire 
of Paul to the Corinthian church, that they may be humbled by the gospel. Now we have reached the last point of of our argument, of, of my argument, of saying that the gospel unites the church. We have seen that the gospel points out the identity of church leaders, also revealed to us the role of Jesus Christ. And now in end of verse 9, Paul says to the Corinthians, you are God's field, God's building. And this is Paul's emphasis on the identity of the church. There are two fundamental truths about church that we can learn from this statement. One is that church belongs to God, and the other is that church is built to glorify God. Church belongs to God, and churches are built to glorify God. First of all, church belongs to God. The church is God's field and building. And by church, we are not talking about any physical building, but the people. When we say the church is owned by God, we are saying the people belong to God. And the implication of this truth is that the church should follow God's order. We are not a group of people who gather together and make up our own rules of how to worship our God. For us to be here every Sunday is not to please anyone or to prove to anyone that we are Christians. We gather because our God has called us to gather in His name. We pray because the Lord commanded us to pray without ceasing. And we preach God's word because the Bible tells us that it is profitable for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness. So all of what we do here as a church comes from the Bible. We are God's people, therefore we follow God's order. Following God's order also means that our belief do not change by the culture. I'm sure you have been part of a conversation where you see different opinions between younger and older generations. And the argument from the younger people would always be that the time has changed. We are in a new generation, a new circumstance. Therefore, what worked back then does not work now. And in a changing world, there's wisdom in that. There's, there's wisdom in that principle because we have to continue to adapt and live. But that change should not happen within our church because the word of God, the teaching of God, does not change. Sin is always sin. There are no sins that were more offensive to God 2,000 years ago and somehow are more acceptable, acceptable in this day and age. Therefore, as God's people, we should always stand firm in the word of God and live under his authority. When Paul wrote that you are God's field, God's building, he did not only mean that we are God's people, but we are also called to glorify God. That is our purpose. Romans 1 verse 20 says, God's invisible attributes, namely his power, and divine nature are clearly seen in things that he was made, that he has made. We know all around the world people visit and admire natural scenes that declare the divine power of God. When people see the views, it is very hard for anyone to believe that they were made by an accident. In Chinese, we use the idiom Gui Fu Shen Gong, 
to describe natural views as work of supernature. So deep in every person's mind, they know someone has made this. The same purpose also applies to the church. When others who do not know the Lord come to church, just as people saw the nature reflecting God's glory, the people of God should also display God's character. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are called to proclaim the excellencies of God. That is our calling. That is our purpose. WSBC is a very hospitable church, and that has been part of our culture. You are a group of people who desire to care for others who are here for the first time or who felt they don't belong here. But while we are doing that, let us not forget what is our purpose. Our intention should not be just letting people know that we are nice people, but to let them know God's goodness. Let us be reminded to point people to God, not to our own good characters. Otherwise, there's no much difference between us and the Corinthians. We are only behaving in a human way, as Paul would say. So our main message today is that churches are broken by pride, but united by the gospel. How pride breaks the church? It stops the church from growing. It creates conflict within the church and distorts the church for its purpose. And how does the gospel unite the church? Paul reminds us that church leaders are servants of God. God is our only Savior. And church should live under God's authority and live up to the purpose of glorifying Him. Brothers and sisters, let us not take Paul's message lightly and not to think that we are not like the Corinthians. The first lesson Shira and I learned from our premarital counseling class is that we should not assume that it is, it is impossible for us to get divorced. In fact, as Christians, knowing that we have sinful nature in our heart, we should be more cautious than anyone else in protecting our marriage. So similarly, as a church, we should not assume that we cannot be harmed or separated by our sins. We must take extra caution and effort in protecting our relationship and glorify God as one body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you as a church and we ask you to work in us through your Holy Spirit that we may love each other and we may have this relationship in peace, that through it we may glorify you you as our Savior, our Lord, our God. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.